Hell is gray, right? Until now, we're about to enter the most colorful bits of Inferno. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk through Dante's work comedy. You know the drill. If you're dropping in here for the first time, good luck. But if you've been riding along or walking along or being along the entire journey, you know that we are in the end, uh, toward the end of the seventh circle of hell. We are in the 17th Canto of Inferno. We have seen the Beast of Fraud breach on the very precipice of the 7th Circle of Hell before it drops off into the 8th Circle. We have been amongst the violent, those violent against their neighbors, those violent against themselves. Remember those people? The, the wood of the suicides? Remember how far back that was? And then those violent toward God, and we saw the blasphemers, the homosexuals, and now finally the last group. And we come upon them now on the edge of the precipice, this group. So let's get to it. Inferno, Canto 17, lines 46 through 78. Their sorrows poured out of their eyes this way and that. They beat their hands at the heated air and against the burning ground. It's just the way dogs do in the summer, now with their muzzles, now with their paws, when they're eaten alive by fleas or tortured with horseflies. When I set my eyes on the faces of those on whom the sorrowful fire cascades, I didn't recognize a single one, but I did notice that pouches hung around each of their necks. These pouches had distinct colors and heraldic symbols, and each one of these guys had a banquet staring at those pouches. When I got up to them and got a good look, I saw a yellow purse embossed with azure, which was made to look like the face and bearing of a lion on the ramparts. When I really got down to noticing the details, I saw another purse that was as blood red, embossed with a goose that was whiter than butter. And one of them who had a purse that was white with a blue pregnant pig embossed on it said to me, what are you doing in this sewer? Get out of here. But hold up. Since you're still alive, know that I'm keeping this seat warm for Vitaliano, my neighbor who's going to sit to my left. I'm a Paduan among these Florentines. They're always thundering in my ears, crying out, Let the sovereign knight come on down who will bring the purse with three goats on it. Then he contorted his mouth and stuck out his tongue like an ox licking its nose. I was a bit scared that a longer stay would get me in trouble with the one who had warned me to be quick about it, so I turned my back on those vanquished souls. Long passage, longer than we usually do in Walking with Dante, but it is the one instance in which we meet these sinners. These are the usurers, those who charge interest on loaned money. We know that because back in Canto 11, Virgil lined out the three classes of evil for those who do violence toward God or attempt to do violence toward God. You can't really do violence toward God, but attempt to do violence toward God. There are the 
blasphemers who are directly at God. There are the homosexuals who do violence against God's child nature. And then there are the usurers, we'll talk more about this, who do violence against God's grandchild or the child of nature, Art. We talked a lot about this back in the 11th Kanto. I want to talk a little bit about it here, but mostly I want to notice the passage and its poetic technique. If you remember, Virgil has sent our pilgrim alone along the edge of the precipice while Virgil has a conversation with the Beast of Fraud about how they're going to get down the cliff and whether the Beast of Fraud is going to carry them. He will, plot spoiler, but okay, Virgil's going to have that conversation, and he has sent the pilgrim along to see these souls sitting here on the edge. Again, as I said last time, and I want you to remember this, this is the very edge of the seventh circle of violence, and you should think about bankers, sorry if there's any bankers listening, bankers and fund managers and those kind of people, sorry, 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 don't don't, don't kill me, I've already done the gay people but myself as a gay man, so don't kill me, sitting here on the edge of the precipice, and what, 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 remember I talked about this last time, these people kind of sit right on the edge of violence and fraud, and surely it's a long-standing tradition that these banker types who lend money are notorious fraudsters. They're also notorious for something else that's left out here, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So the front of the passage starts, their sorrows poured out of their eyes this way and that they beat their hands at the heated air and against the burning ground. That's at least the way I translated it. Let me tell you that Singleton uh, sees it differently. He sees it that their hands are beating at the air and then they're pressing their hands against the burning ground to lift their Butts, and it wouldn't be wrong to think this given that this entire canto is so much about tails to lift their butts off the burning sand. And certainly that is a way to translate it. I think I translated it more simply. Nonetheless, uh, Singleton may be right that that's exactly what they're doing is they're beating their hands to the air and they're lifting their back ends up off the hot sand. In any event, it's just the way dogs do in the summer. And now here we come to one of the 15 metaphors or similes in this canto. And this one is about dogs in the summer being tortured by horseflies and fleas. And now with their muzzles, now with their paws, you know, trying to get get off of these torments off of them. This is one of those moments in which a sinner, or this case, a group of sinners, is specifically linked with an animal. We had Chaco and the hog amongst gluttony, but we haven't had too much bestial imagery until now. And this paves our way into the circle of fraud in which we will have a great deal of bestial imagery about the sinners. And this is kind of setting us up and gives us another notion that these guys are right on the edge of violence and fraud. When I set my eyes on the faces of those on whom the sorrowful fire cascades, carrying on in the passage, I didn't recognize a single one. This is curious. There's nobody who stands out. And this is going to prove important to the passage and something that I think is missed in general in the commentary tradition. But the poem goes on to say, I did notice that pouches hung around each of their necks. These pouches had distinct colors and heraldic symbols. What he means there is a distinct background color. Uh, color and then something embossed or stitched on top of it, a heraldic symbol, a family crest. So what we really have here are not individuals, but families. They are going to be represented as these 
banking families sitting here. And each one of these guys, the passage said, had a banquet staring at those pouches. Okay, so let's just stop a moment and think about what's going on here. First of all, what we really have to know here is that these guys are money guys. They're the usurers. We know this from back in Canto 11 when we were told they were going to be there. And there's some clues in the passage that's that, that's to come, the colorful bits of the passage, that will tell us they're the usurers. But we know that. And so um, they are, how do I say this, new money pretending to be old money. Or they're new money, the banking class, the rising liquidity, the rising commerce and banking functionality of Florence. Back in Canto 11, it was associated with Cahors in France, but actually Florence itself is becoming a giant banking center. And these guys are showing off old heraldic symbols, their family coat of arms on these purses that are hung about their necks as moneylenders, as the fire falls on them. Remember that the whole discussion of how they do violence is important because they're doing violence against art, which is the child of nature, which is the child of God. This was back in Canto 11. They're doing this kind of violence because they are trying to create something, more money, out of something that is already itself holding a place for something else. I mean, money, cash, right? $5 is holding the place for something else. It's holding the place for the goodwill and credit of the government of whatever country you're at. $5, I guess, worth the United States, but it could be Canada or the Netherlands, right? It's the good faith and credit of that institution. So it itself is a placeholder, that $5 for the faith and credit of that national entity, or in this case of the bank entity because we didn't have national entities necessarily issuing coin in the same way we do now. So they're trying to make more out of something that is itself already a empty representation of something else. I know that seems complicated. We talked about it a bit back in, in Canto 11. We talked about how it ties to a theory of art, that art arises out of nature. But just think about it this way. The homosexuals are, this is going to be very crass, so forgive me, the homosexuals are having non-procreative sex. No gay couple on their own is going to have sex and produce a child. And by and large, by the way, homosexuality is a sin of men in Dante's day. Lesbians are just almost not considered or thought of, or it's almost as if it's a different class of problems. Homosexuality is almost fully a male problem in Dante's day. So there's no way that these guys are going to have what should be a creative act. There's no child going to come from it. And in the same way, these guys are also, how do I say, uh, disrupting the procreative act by charging interest on money. Now, there are biblical prohibitions against charging interest on money. They're found in what Christians call the Old Testament or what Jews call the Tanakh or actually the Torah. The Torah itself, the first five books of the Tanakh, the quote-unquote Old Testament. There are prohibitions against charging interest on money. It's considered to be something that you shouldn't do in order to have a civil and good society. And here are these guys, these money lenders, and they are being identified by their family. And you should know one more thing before we pass on, on the, in this passage, before we pass on into the rest of it. There are indications, and some people claim, that Dante's own family, the Alighieri's, and his kin 
were bankers and made money by, as it said in the Italian, il prestito del denaro, the lending of money. And there's a way in which Dante here, at the end of the circle of violence, is confronting something that his own family may have been involved with. And this may be why we see here families by their purses around their necks, rather than necessarily individuals. In other words, if Dante were to call out individuals, he might have to call out a member of his own family. And instead, by implicating families here, he may be taking on some of the blame that his family comes in for without actually naming any names. But there's probably more to it than that, so let's pass on in the passage. It says, when I got up to them and got a good look, I saw a yellow purse embossed with azure, which was made to look like the face and bearing of a lion on the ramparts. And this is the Gianfigliazzo family. They are a black Guelph family, a known banking family, but you'll notice that we don't actually know who this guy is. Now, this is where I think the commentary misses it. The commentary for 700 years has been very involved with pointing out exactly which member of the family this is, but that misses the text. In other words, they're going to say, oh, this is Guido so-and-so, <laughs> right? This is Carl Smith, and he's the member of this family. No, that's missing it. The point is to be identified by their heraldic crests and their pouches. This is calling entire families into blame. And sure, there's a single guy sitting there looking down at his own pouch and <laughs> making a banquet out of his own money pouch. But at the same time, it does to me a disservice of the text to try to name the guy that is here doing this because, again, it seems as if, A, a family is being condemned, and B, it ties into synecdoche. Remember, a part for the whole, 400 head of cattle? These guys are identified by a part, their purse, and in fact, one member of the family sitting there staring at his purse stands in for the whole family. It's a double synecdoche. The pouch is a synecdoche for the family itself, and the single guy is a synecdoche for the family. It's building off the entire poetic structure of this canto, which is built around synecdoches, about parts for the whole. We saw this back with the Beast of Fraud. I went over this <laughs> endlessly with the various pieces of him, particularly his tail. And I just want you to see that here when it moves on. When I finally got down to noticing the details, I saw another person that was as blood red. It was so red. It was like blood embossed with a goose that was whiter than butter. This is the Orbriaki family. They are Ghibellines. And again, so much of the, the commentary is, is about which member of the Orbriaki family is this. It doesn't matter. In fact, the text is shying away from naming someone. This is not a text comedy that ever shies away from naming people. Brunetto Latini. <laughs> Jacopo Rusticucci. This never shies away from naming people. And here, it seems to me that the text itself is shying away in a kind of double synecdoche pattern, 
couch for family, single member of the family, for the family. It seems to me that it's all being constructed poetically for a reason. And one of them, it goes on to say, who had a purse that was white with a blue pregnant pig embossed on it, said to me, ah, now finally one of them speaks, but let's first talk about who this is. This is the Scroveni family of Padua. The Scrovenis you may know still to this day because the Scrovenis, well, one of their sons gave the money for that incredible chapel that Giotto painted the inside of, that gorgeous, unbelievable Paduan monument, the Scroveni Chapel. If you ever get a chance to go to Padua, you must see the Scroveni Chapel. And in fact... It may have been being painted by Giotto and his students at the exact moment that this is being written. So this is the Scroveni family out of Padua. And this guy, whichever one it is, and it doesn't matter. That's the point. This is a familial sin. Homosexuality, blasphemy, suicide, murder, anger, profligacy, avarice, these are not family sins, but we have reached this place in which we've got, I invite my kid into my business. So here's one of them. And he says, what are you doing in this sewer? Get out of here. This is the first true belligerent challenge to our pilgrim. We have had a few, you know, why are you here's from Chaco and the likes, and we have had an angry response from Filippo Argenti back in sticks. But this is the first time someone seems to just confront the pilgrim for being alive and say, get out. You don't belong here. You should just know that in fraud, on down in the eighth circle of hell, this will become a recurrent theme. People saying, get out. You're alive. You have no business being here, that they're ashamed. They don't want to be known. Remember, in the past, we keep seeing sinners who want to be known, who say, remember me up above. We're about to go over a cliff and things are going to change. And there are a lot, not all, but a lot of sinners below us who don't want to be remembered. This seems to be a part of that beginning thematic. But he says, hold up, since you're still alive, know that I'm keeping this seat warm for Vitaliano. So (laughs) Vitaliano was the chief magistrate of Padua. He may or may not have been a usurer and a banker. He did marry into the Scrovani family. But what we should note here is that one sinner is not named, but is wanting to name somebody else. And this will come up in the circle of fraud. In other words, I'm not going to tell you who I am, but I'm going to tell you who's coming after me because I really want to implicate them. But don't remember me and don't think about me because I'm ashamed to be here. And this is the first time we see a sinner trying to implicate another sinner who's headed down. I'm keeping this seat warm for Vitaliano, my neighbor, who's going to sit on my left. Let's stop a minute and think a little bit more about this passage. Long ago, Kivacci Leonardi, in her commentary on Inferno, noted that this is the most colorful moment in all of Inferno. You will later find in Purgatorio, and particularly in Paradiso, that they are extremely gorgeous, colorful 
pieces of the poem. But Inferno, not so much. It's gray. It's dark. There are flames. Mm, there's murky water. There's muck everywhere. It's it's not pretty. But suddenly here, these colors jump out and they call out to us in an extremely specific way. That is, they force us to take notice of the colorfulness of this bit. There could be a rationale here. That is, that the lending of money leads to a kind of ostentatious show of wealth, thus all the colors. It could be that the lending of money calls attention to itself and that bankers, there could be a comment here, that bankers like to call attention to themselves and thus all the beautiful, bright colors. It could be kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, fool's gold. That is, colors that attract your attention like money does and yet that in the end gets you into trouble, at least in Dante's ethic. It could be for any of those reasons and it could be that Dante wants to have a visually arresting scene. After all, the poet keeps emphasizing when I got down to looking, when I really looked close, when I noticed all the details, wants to really emphasize the visual nature of this scene because of what's going to come next. But let's take a second gander at what happens right here at these these various sinners, these usurers sitting here, these bankers, these people who charge interest on loaned money and say that there is something missing here. And Teodolinda Parolini, the great Dantista, points it out. It's where I get the idea from. And I think she's dead right. One of the things that is so intriguing about this passage is that there are no Jews. Any medieval text would have Jews right here. They would be the, the, the stereotypical anti-Semitic trope. Now, admittedly, that trope is more prevalent in Northern Europe than it is in Southern Europe. That is very true for the late Middle Ages, but it was still around in Southern Europe, and it's still curious that Dante avoids the anti-Semitism that is notorious with this sin during the Middle Ages. In fact, a sinner burning up in hell with a money bag around his neck is almost emblematic in medieval iconology of a Jew burning up in hell. But these aren't. These are Florentine and Paduan families who are themselves guilty of this sin. Good Christians, people who go to church and have their pew and all that kind of thing. And to have left the Jews out is shocking. I realize it's hard to argue from absence. But given what anti-Semitism was in the late Middle Ages, given that the sin of usury would always be associated with Jews, it's just so strange that it's not here. In fact, here's something for you, and this pushes Barolini's point. Where have any Jews been up to this point? Given the rabid anti-Semitism of the Middle Ages, where are any of them at this point? And surely they should be here, but we should we should have seen them back there with with uh, avaricious and the prodigal. We should have definitely seen them back there with the angry. We might have seen some Jewish women amongst the lustful, given anti-Semitic stereotypes. Why are there no Jews in the poem up to this point? It's a curious 
absence. In fact, it's one that Barolini claims was big enough that Dante attracted some Hebraic scholars during his own day to his poem because of its lack of anti-Semitism. For example, Emmanuel ben Solomon, who is almost Dante's exact contemporary, born maybe about 1270, died maybe about 1330, he wrote a Hebrew imitation of Inferno and Purgatorio. Purgatorio cracks me up. The most Christian part of the whole poem. He wrote a Hebrew imitation of Inferno and Purgatorio. What what would have brought him to this pass? Well, it could be the lack of obvious anti-Semitism. Now, there's going to come some anti-Semitical moments. Believe me, I'm not saying the poem is not anti-Semitic, there are going to come some anti-Semitical moments, and then there are going to come some moments that are almost shocking in the way the poem turns toward, not away from, but toward Jews. But that's way on down the road. So let's just say a little bit more about this passage. Remember back in Canto 16 when Dante launches into that that big prophecy and I made the big deal about the prophetic stance about the new money and the sudden wealth in Florence? Well, here they are. <laughs> when Dante launches into that prophetic voice about the new money that's ruining Florence, here they are. They're, they're sitting right here on the edge of the cliff. This returns us right back to Canto 16, line 73, where Dante decries the new money in Florence, which itself turns us right back to Canto 15 and Brunetto Latini and his notion of, as it were, renouncing worldly pursuits and following your star instead of trying to gain necessarily earthly fame. It all links these cantos back up across each other, 15, 16, and 17, because they all kind of thematically interlink like a chain. Let's look at the last bit of what this character, this Scrovani character, says in the passage. He says, I'm a Paduan among these Florentines. Again, Emphasis on the good Christian people. They're always thundering in my ears, crying out, let the sovereign knight come on down and we'll bring the purse with three goats on it. Most of the commentary points out that this is the Becky family. Again, Ghibellines. But notice again, they're looking for a new moneyed knight. So there's a confusion of chivalry and new money. This guy, this Scrovani family member, he contorts his mouth and sticks out his tongue like an ox licking its nose, both indicating his bestial nature and also an ox, especially in medieval iconography, is a notoriously sluggish or stupid animal. And so thus the kind of, how do I say this, laziness of making money by lending money. You're not working with your hands. Instead, you're making money by sitting around sitting around with your calculator or in these days with your terminal and you're sitting around making money without using your hands or any manual labor as humans should do given the curse in the Garden of Eden. It's a long way around to say that this is a complicated but final 
bash at the usurers for both their kind of non-human stance and the way that they make money sitting around. Okay, let's pass out to the last little bit of the passage. I was a bit scared that a longer stay would get me in trouble with the one who had warned me to be quick about it. So I turned my back on those vanquished souls. Notice the paraphrases. Why did you say I was scared along that a longer stay would get me in trouble with Virgil? It's Virgil who had warned him to be quick about it. Notice the paraphrases or the walking around it, which kind of reminds us of Synecdoche. That is, this character is being called forth by his warning, by a piece of him to represent the whole thing back there. It is paraphrastic phrasing, but it has a little bit of a feel of Synecdoche behind it. Why all this bit about paraphrases and Synecdoche? Well, Let's just parse this out a minute, pull it apart. Synecdoche as a rhetorical strategy, using the part standard for a whole, shows a fragmentary world. And surely, Synecdoche is important to see here on the crack, <laughs> at the crack, between the violent and the fraudulent, because this is what violence and fraud does to the world. It fractures it, it fragments it. Synecdoche is by definition a fragmenting rhetorical device. But there's more to it than that. Synecdoche is the rationale for comedy as a whole. Each of the sinners of hell so far and each of the blessed up in paradise, they are one person who represents a class. Take Francesca amongst the lostful. She herself is a synecdoche. She is one member of the lustful that represents the class. And what do we know about the lustful? That is, they try to justify themselves. They try to excuse themselves. They try to claim that love is part of the social order. They try to claim that courtly love is part of the cultural values of the time. This is how the lustful behave. They try to endlessly self-justify. And he, here's our synecdoche, Francesca, with her lover Paolo floating out there on the wind. All of comedy is set up on synecdoche. That's what these characters are. These characters represent the sin of usury. When we got to Brunetto Latini, he represents the sin of violence against nature. When we saw Capaneus stretched out on the sands, he represents the sin of violence against God or blasphemy. When we listen to Pierre de la Vagna in the, in the Wood of the Suicides, he represents the problems of the suicide. That is the constant attempt to overlook what you did to yourself in the face of justifying why you did it. He represents that as a synecdoche. That's going to work out all the way to the very top of paradise. The entire comedy is set up on the strategy of synecdoche. And here, at this moment, in the 17th canto, when Dante has sworn on his own book, named it comedy, swore that it's true, swore that he really saw these things, and the poetics are heightened, the very methodology of comedy itself becomes foregrounded in this canto. Because it seems to me that as the poem becomes, to use a very literary word, more self-conscious, that is, as it's 
bones become more exposed, as its rhetorical techniques become more exposed, as it becomes more conscious of actually using those rhetorical techniques, we shouldn't be surprised that in the 17th Canto of Inferno, we see used over and over again the rhetorical technique that is the very basis of writing comedy. You take one sinner and you make them stand in for the sin as a whole, or you take one of the blessed and you make them stand in for the virtue as a whole. And we've got a lot more comedy to go. This has been a long episode of the podcast. It's a big passage to get to the users. There are probably still questions you've got about them. If you've got questions, look me up on my website. You can write, drop a comment there. My email address is right there. In fact, it's right on the player here that you're listening to. I think you can find me that way. You write an email to me. You can write me through my website. I'd be glad to talk to you there. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. Read it. You know the drill. Do all that stuff you need to do. Come back next time and let's find out what happens when Dante walks back along the edge of the precipice and back to the beast of fraud and Virgil says something that scares our pilgrim. This is Walking with Dante, and I'm Mark Scarborough.